Welcome back to Kings of the North, a very exciting show this week. Landis, we're doing midseason all North KOTN teams. The first time anybody has taken 28 Northern teams and tried to find the very best college football players. It's a new way to do it, but we had fun, didn't we? Yeah, it was fun. Um, we're probably like a week late. I think we're technically mm. past the midseason, but uh, yeah, it's all right. We're still we're still making history here. We 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 waited for two major games, right? We got Oregon yeah. Washington done, and then we got Ohio State Penn State done. And I think what happened in Ohio State Penn State affected some of our picks, so that's yep. okay. Mm-hmm. We're experimenting. It's it's just a great honor for anybody. Whenever we do it, we're also uh, going to do look ahead at the end. Of course, the Brian Ferentz Survivor Show. We're going to rank the best teams, but we're instead of doing the best players, we're doing those all North teams, offense, defense, and instead of the frantic fourteen to start, talking about a little sign stealing. We didn't get to do it last week, but we have to talk about sign stealing. But also, as as we make our way through Kings of the North and we establish what we are, we're looking for like little segments, right? We're looking for, you know, a little try this, try this. I w- thought maybe, ladies, we could experiment with the Southern football social media post of the week because I have a candidate from last week. And okay. this is one of those, I saw it on, on the Twitter feed, and I can't tell if it's serious <laughs> those are the or best ones. <laughs> if it's a parody of itself. And we're not going to put up the tweet. We're not going to show who did it because everyone's just trying to get by, right? But, you know, Kirby Smart was at a charity bowling event. I believe Mark Rick, former Georgia coach, was the host. That's great. It's great everybody turned out, raised some money. It's a fantastic thing. This was an actual... Social media post that I saw. Kirby Smart just bowled a strike on his first and only roll of the night and then walked off. Dog mentality. <laughs> is that is that actually how it's like like Kirby Smart walked over to the produce section and didn't even have to squeeze the pineapple before he chose it? <laughs> dog mentality he's got that intuition that pineapple intuition uh Kirby smart didn't even yeah. use a cup at mcdonald's he just put the diet coke right in his hands and slurped it up dog mentality <laughs> kirby smart didn't even wear a backwards baseball cap he just painted a cap on his head with the magic marker dog mentality you got any more Kirby Smart ate a whole bag of marshmallows for breakfast. Dog mentality. Like, is that is that for real? Is that what they're doing down there? Yeah, that's probably be, for right? real. That's yeah, probably that's for real. real. Yeah, yeah, that's real. Yeah. Having spent Kirby uh, Smart putted the ball right in the clown's nose for a free game. Dog mentality. <laughs> Those Georgia folks love their dogs, man. The dogs could do no wrong. So I think that's real. Okay. So maybe, well, should we do Southern football social media post of the week? Do we think there are going to be others like that out there? Dog mentality. Yeah, you can probably just like scour Tennessee Twitter and come up with one each week if you wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. But no, Georgia's, yeah. That's Georgia's fruitful territory, I think. Alabama. Um, Florida State, certainly. Feeling themselves a little bit right now. I think you can find some stuff there. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Players driving 118 to school zone. Dog mentality. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) Dog style. Uh, I don't think I want a dog mentality. All right, we got to. No. Maybe Jim Harbaugh, though. Jim Harbaugh. 
sending a marine sending into the, the troops stands at Rutgers with a pair of binoculars <laughs> and a big old video camera. Dog mentality. Uh, maybe, maybe that. Uh... All right, so let's do sign stealing. We're going to do, we have five questions to ask about this Michigan sign stealing scandal. This is not a show where we're going to like explain news. It's like if you're here by now and you're like, what? Stole a what? I, just you'll find it somewhere else. Just use the Google machine. So we're going to talk about we're going to try to analyze it a little bit. So the 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 accusations at this moment, but it's beyond accusations because it's like the NCAA and the Big Ten are saying it. And they're like warning the Michigan opponents. When Michigan played Michigan State last week, Michigan State did not signal their plays in. They sent in the backup quarterback to run on the field. And why do yellow banana? Run, run the play that doesn't work. Run the play. Run the uh, one yard gain. One yard gain. So, do you think that it's like it was like one of those like a uh, Cub Scout things where you whisper in the circle, and by the time it got to the starting quarterback, it, the play was completely <laughs> yeah. wrong. Either all, all of the guys are running a different play. Yeah, yeah. Uh, get stuck in your ear hole. The signal get so. That like that's enough. They were like they had to warn Michigan State. Michigan might be doing this. So my first question about this: We have had sign stealing issues in sports before. The two most famous are Spygate in 2007 with the New England Patriots, who were like uh, videotaping stuff, and then the Houston Astros in 2017 were video and signals into the dugout and banging a trash can, and they were doing that. This is my question. To me, Spygate, which led to a loss of a first-round draft pick, a half-million-dollar fine for Bill Belichick, which is the most a head coach could be fined. That the Patriots already had three Super Bowl titles. Yeah. By the time that came out, like in that moment, and then even later, it was kind of like, yeah, they actually might have been doing this the whole time, but they were established as winners before it came out. The Astros, it was like they cheated their way to their first title. Like sort of like as it was happening, it's sort of like, look at these cheaters, these cheatery cheaters cheated their way to a championship. Mm -hmm. So one to me is more like a black mark on a champion. And the other is you maybe only became a champion because you cheated. As we are thinking about Michigan right now, which one do you think it's closer to? <clears throat> um, Probably the Patriots one, I, I would think, because... um. The, the gentleman in the crosshairs here, Connor Stallions, which is a great name, by the way. Like, if you could, if, if you, if you said this scandal is going to happen, what's the best possible name for the guy in the middle of all of it? The answer is Connor Stallions, right? Yeah. 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 Cause that's what it sounds like Johnny Bananas or something. It's like a <laughs> fake name. Did you, see, our, our friend Shahan, did you see uh, Shahan's joke that Connor the Stallion? Been, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if he'd been good. stealing signs for Ohio State, to be Connor the Stallions. Yeah. yeah. I, changed joke, my, I changed my fantasy football team's name to Connor Stallions. Yeah. For real? Yeah. You can change your fantasy football name in the middle of the year? Yeah. Huh? Okay. I change it like what, six times a year. Yeah. Was your previous name Go Birds? Uh, no, the previous name was Wide Receiver U because I have Jamar Chase and Justin Jefferson. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, so you think it's closer to sort of like a a possible black mark on a, on a championship team not a driving force to becoming a championship team. Yeah, because this uh, this allegedly goes back before the 2021 season. I yeah. think like the, I think this guy like became a full time staffer around that time, but he had been doing work for Michigan prior to that. So like 
it was part of the build, I suppose, for Michigan. But I don't, I don't know that it's like. I think with the Astros, it's almost like the sole reason they won, right? That's what that's how everybody views it. Um, yeah. Whether whether or not that's true, that's I think that's how it's viewed. I don't know if that's the way that this is or should be viewed. And it felt like after the Astros, like everybody in baseball hated the Astros, the cheatery yeah. cheaters and Astros, who I actually do think should have had their World Series title stripped. I, agree. I actually yeah. think that that was a mistake that baseball didn't do that. Um, I don't know that anybody thought that they should have taken Super Bowls away from the Patriots. I actually think like at the moment it could go either way. I might be 50-50 on this. Actually, yeah. I take that back. I think I might be 33-33-33 on maybe it's more like Astros, maybe it's more like Patriots, or maybe it's nothing. Maybe it actually turns out to be far less than either of those. But I, I'm open to the idea that as we go a little bit further down here, there could be a, depending what the what's proven, I don't know, some idea that like you won because of the cheating. I don't think that's off the table. I wouldn't say that now. I don't think it's impossible that that's where we land. No, yeah, I think that's on the table too. We'll have to see what comes out of it, right? I, I don't know. <clears throat> what all the NCAA is going to be able to get its hands on, yeah, as it does this, it feels like at the moment. I, I mean, it does feel like th the way that they came out with it. It does seem like they believe they have some proof here of, of yeah. this beyond just other teams telling them they thought it was going on. What that proof is, we don't know. I, I guess in due time, we'll, we'll figure that out. So it does feel like there is another shoe that's going to drop here. But yeah, I, I just don't know where 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 that's going to lead us. That the the thing that makes me think it's more like the Patriots is like. The Astros going out of their way to like set up a camera in a place yeah. where a camera shouldn't be and then like relay like it was just like it was so it was such a step beyond I think what is normal or um like within the confines yeah. of gamesmanship I think like if the Patriots were on the sideline taping other teams signals like they weren't going to practices and trying to find stuff that way. And like Michigan was going, I guess, allegedly going to places where it wasn't supposed to go to, but the only reason they weren't supposed to go there is because the NCAA banned in-person scouting because half of the division one teams couldn't afford to do it. It's not like they banned it because they thought it was morally, you know, reprehensible to do so. Yeah. They're just like, it was a money thing. So, um, that's why I feel like it's a little more like the Patriots thing. And, and it's not like anyone was banging a trash can next to Jim Harbaugh being like, it's a run play. Bang. Yeah, well, some of the photos, the, I mean, he was he was in Jim Harbaugh's back pocket, Mr. Stallions. Hmm. Maybe he didn't he didn't need a, a trash can because he, Jim, psst, I got some stuff for you, Jim. I was in the Marines. Uh, all right, the next one. How big of an edge do we think this was for Michigan? Like, do we, do we think it swung games? Like, what uh, what do we think this? How much did this matter? I mean, I've seen people like last year we talked about Michigan as like a quote unquote second half team, right? They they outscored Big Ten opponents 188 to 48 in the second half last year. Rutgers and Ohio State, like the two teams that I think, well, certainly Michigan Raiders have like accused Ohio State of being the one that died oh, yeah. out Michigan. And, and, and Greg Schiano in a halftime interview earlier this year, like was not so subtle about suggesting what was happening. Uh, Michigan outscored those two teams 66 to three in the second half last year. So, like, was that a part of it, or was Michigan just really good at making adjustments? Maybe it's a little bit of both. Like, I, I do think if if you have the book on opponents' signals, the way that it is suggested here, I, like that has to give you an on-field advantage because even if teams change in game or in the week leading up to it, like you're already gaining an advantage as Michigan because you're forcing them to spend time on stuff they otherwise wouldn't be. They've been extremely well coached. And so that's like, you know, this is like, hey, this is helping us be extremely, extremely well coached. Um, 
it's one of those things. I I do think it could be the actual edge gained is less than the code broken, right? That hey yeah. man, there's a rule. You're not supposed to do this. That's the bigger deal than oh my gosh, that's why they made the playoff the last two years. So um both matter, but even if the edge is not gargantuan, I do think that like you were doing something. And again, this is all if still. If you were doing something that nobody else was doing because everybody else was following the rule, even if the edge gained is minimal, you were still doing that. So I I, I think maybe the edge is not. Um, it's not the difference between eight and four and number two team in the country. You know. Right. Um, yeah. All right. Number three. Um, what should the punishment be? So this is like it's like you if the, say they figure it out. Because this is just so different than, you know, they give back in the day, you give money to a player, and the result is that like uh, the other hundred players are banned from a bowl, yeah. right? Three years later, this is like direct on the field competitive advantage. So, what do you think? And I will say really quickly $5 million fine for the Astros. They lost their first round pick and second round picks in the draft in consecutive years. And, um, they suspended the manager and the general manager for a full year. And then the Astros just fired them both. And then there were even ramifications, right? Like the guy who had been the manager or was the coach went with the Red Sox and he got fired. Like yeah, there were a lot of yeah. no, people didn't lose their jobs. Like Bill Belichick didn't get fired. People in charge, the bosses uh, and like Carlos Beltran, who was a player involved with the Astros and then was going to be a manager. He got that taken away. There are multiple people who lost their jobs over the Astros stuff. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. <clears throat> I suppose I suppose if they are able to catalog specific teams that Michigan had this advantage over, then maybe, I don't know, do we didn't start talking about like vacating those wins? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like they're just not going to be able to unearth a whole lot that's going to lead to specific pun punishments relative to this particular incident. But I get like my question for you would be like if the NCAA combines this and the other investigation yeah. into Jim Harbaugh, which is like not about a cheeseburger, it's about having impermissible recruiting visits during COVID when you weren't allowed to do it. It wasn't about the freaking cheeseburger. Like people keep talking about that as a joke and like minimizing what it was. That's not what it was. And um, then potentially lying to the NCAA about lying it. Lying to the NCAA about it. Combine those two things, then uh, that might leave you in a bad spot if you're Jim Harbaugh, right? Like you're a rule breaker. Yeah. Like you disregard the rules, and here's multiple examples of it. You disregard the rules in an attempt to gain an edge. Um, it's hard because I, I like vacating wins. I just think I'm. I think a lot of people are over. Like we're now yes. going to pretend things didn't Toothless. happen, right? Yeah. Even though I think they should have stripped the Astros World Series title. Um, I do think you can find people a lot. So the Big Ten distributed almost $59 million to its members last year. What if you took 20% of the distribution away? And then just gave, instead of giving that 20 million to Michigan, you spread it out among everybody else. Now, the thing that I would fear is like, oh, the Big Ten reduced our distribution. We're cutting three teams. I was like, well, that's right. Because like in the end, like it trickles down. But I think you could find coaches starting with Jim Harbaugh I think you could find the athletic department in a financial way but then in the end the problem would be if those fines hurt athletes 
which yeah. is not the point. It's like, and that's why the softball team has to go in a van nine hours because Jim Harbaugh yeah. had a d- Marine in the stands like that. That's what I would fear. So, but that's the whole fear with the NCAA that the wrong people will end up being punished, which makes punishment very difficult, which might mean that if they really come after Michigan, Jim Harbaugh is the chargers coach next year. <laughs> right. Yeah. That, that might be the end result of all. I don't know. He keeps doing crazy stuff and like, staying in michigan so i, I don't yeah. know maybe maybe he's he's still there next year too but this, this feels like just like another nudge in that direction but i don't want to predict something that's unlikely to happen but right, but um, they do show cause penalties and stuff that like just make it very difficult for yeah. you to c- continue to coach at a high level because you're so restricted right what about scholarship reductions that kind of stuff like like so like that i just dislike like that is that seems terrible to me that you wind up having fewer high school players who have an opportunity to play football at Michigan because a Marine was in the stands with binoculars like that. Yeah. Like you want, you want to sort of take away, if you want to try to hit Michigan's competitiveness, I just don't want to do it by taking away things from college kids. So I would not necessarily be in favor of that. Although that's a way to hit them. If all of a sudden you're down 10 scholarship players, that's a competitive disadvantage for you. Yeah, I, I mean, you're right. The wrong people get punished in that scenario. But I also just don't know, like, suspending coaches didn't have much of an impact on Michigan yeah. this year. You know what I mean? So, like, I, I don't – if you if you want them to, to feel it, I, I mean, that's probably the way to do it, unfortunately. Is, the is whole sport is controlled by money, so I'm kind of in favor of taking money away. Right? Yeah. Everything yeah. that's done is because of money. Also, yeah. maybe close the portal. Shut them out of the portal for two years because that's you not hurting no players. Yeah, that'd no be portal. interesting. That would be yeah. interesting. Yeah, Close you can't portal. take any transfers. Yeah, like you can't take draft picks away because they don't exist. But what if you said no portal? Huh? Because they've done really well in the portal. Yeah. No Drake yeah. Nugent. No Oluwatimi. Yeah. It could hurt. That would hurt. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, the history of Ohio State Michigan. What does this do to it? I think this <laughs> potentially is an all timer. I think this goes down with like, you know, tearing down the 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 sign at Michigan stadium and the Marcus hall double bird and like all the historic things like, right. This is when Jack park does his next history of the Ohio state, Michigan rivalry. This potentially has a prominent place in it. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't Ohio state's involvement in this does not feel like speculation, right? The photos and the Yahoo sports story were from the Ohio state, Michigan game and Michigan certainly didn't provide them. Um, There was an unnamed Ohio state staffer quoted in one of the national outlet stories. Like, they are part of this. Whether or not they were they were the impetus for it, I, we don't know. Um, some of the accusations have probably been a, been a little heavy-handed from the Michigan side of things, but there's clearly clearly Ohio State involvement here. And I know there's just Michigan people who think Ohio State had Don Brown signs when when Ohio State was putting on them a few years ago. I don't think you need to know the sign when the guy plays cover one all the time, but you know maybe maybe yeah. they did have they did have the sign that said play man coverage on this play. Um, so no, this is this is this is in I think in in the fabric of it now. It, it it's it layers this year's game, right? That's all we're going to yeah. be talking about when that game comes around. And I'm like, who's who does that? I don't need to help is the right word, but like Michigan's going to be ticked off that they think Ohio state was the one that put them in that position. And Ohio state is, I guess, hopeful that there will be like a more level playing field in that game and can make a better result than they've had the last two years. They're going to have, they're going to be fighting over who's more angry. Yeah. yeah that game is going to get chippy. <laughs> this is not the time to talk about this. It is time to talk about it soon. 
this has a chance to be the best Ohio State Michigan game ever. I, I didn't know that I ever thought 2006 1 2 could be topped. This has a chance because I think it has a chance to be 1 2. Yep. And Lloyd Carr and Jim Tressel didn't hate each other. Yeah, no, this is like yeah, this is the animosity here is 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 different, I think, than it has been yeah. in the Ohio State. It's personal mm-hmm. <laughs> between between Ryan Day and Jim Harbaugh, I think very clearly. And yeah, no, yeah. I'm I'm there with you. Yeah. It's got a chance. All right. Last thing, would you do it? Would you want your team to do it? So there's some I think idea in this, and like, you know what? Like you're gaining an edge, get after it, but maybe you were a little careless or sloppy or silly to get caught. Right. But hey, like, is there a part of like all's fair, baby, trying to win a title? Or would you be like, how dare you? I would never want my team to attempt to break the rules in this manner. I don't think I'd want my team to go to these lengths. Like, if I'm a Clemson fan and Brent Venables is just excellent at stealing signs and using it to his advantage, I probably almost take some pride in that. Um, but, but not, not this way, not, not going out of the way the Mich- way Michigan is alleged to have done here. Okay, I think that's I think that's probably right. I mean, it's one of those things you I think at the highest level you want to be right up at the edge, right? Yep. You want to be pushing the envelope and you know, to Jim Harbaugh's credit, he's pushed the envelope a lot and a lot of people have followed, right? I mean, early on here he's taking his players overseas, he's doing the satellite camps that everybody copied until they changed the rules. Like he's an innovator. He does not accept the status quo. And I think if he had gone to Michigan and accepted the status quo, they wouldn't be where they are right now. Mm-hmm. So he's done a pretty good job. I think right now, this version of Michigan is the best of Jim Harbaugh of the past, what he did successfully at Stanford and in the NFL, and also Jim Harbaugh innovating. And I've talked a lot about you know the credit he gets for completely turning over his coaching staff, which led to um, this success here. So a lot of great hires in there. So, you know. That like I do. There's a lot that he's done. Push, push, push. But this maybe feels like a little bit, a little bit past where uh, everybody else would be comfortable. Yeah, it's bra- it's brazen. It's brazen. Well, and that's one of those things. Like I, I. So he kind of went from maybe odd at the beginning, right? You take your shirt off at camps, you're climbing trees, you're sleeping over at recruits' houses, whatever. But I think that was. In hindsight, I think there was strategy to that. And then he kind of went to brash, right? So odd brash now he's like going after people like he won't accept you know he's going after gene smith he's going after ryan day he won't let anybody say anything about his team even if they didn't mean it he's coming after you and and so and like that worked like all of this worked and then but now it's like is it too far is this now is it well if it's cheating like is that odd worked brash worked Mm, this might be too much all right that's enough sign stealing. We had to check in on it. We had to check in on it. It's the biggest story in Northern football. We didn't have a chance to talk about it until now. Those are our five, what would normally be our first five things in the Frantic 14, but we're still going to plant some flags. Not about Michigan. My flag plant this week is I think the fact that Utah's had USC's number, I think it's four straight, but three straight now against Lincoln Riley the last two years, is not a great sign for USC coming to the Big Ten because is not Utah the most Big Ten-like current Pac-12 team? Absolutely. Yeah. Like everybody in the Big Ten, especially like everybody in the Big Ten who's not Ohio State or Michigan should be taking notes on what Kyle Whittingham does. And like USC can't handle it. They can't handle the physicality. They can't handle sort of like the attitude of Kyle Whittingham. This version of like super talented quarterback, but a defense that can't stop anybody. 
Like, I don't know. Everybody in the Big Ten starting next year for USC is not going to be as good as Utah at doing it. But what Illinois and Iowa and Minnesota and Rutgers and Michigan State, when they're good, and all those teams, Michigan to a degree, what they do is a, at least a facsimile of what Utah does, and USC cannot figure it out. Yeah, I think it'll it'll embolden the current Big Ten teams too. Like you're not you're not going to be Utah, but I think I think everyone in the Big Ten now can believe that there's a, a path to them pushing USC around in a way that makes them uncomfortable. Yeah. All right. What's your flag plan? So I just wanted to take like a, a temperature on a few northern coaches. This is less less of a take and more more of a check in here. Um, but some coaches we've talked about throughout this year and kind of their job status, how hot's the seat, that kind of stuff. Uh, Boston College beats for uh, Georgia Tech this week. Um, they're four and three. I think Jeff Halfley might be okay now. We talked we talked a lot about him um, earlier this year. They have UConn, Syracuse, Virginia Tech, Pitt, and Miami left. They need to get two more wins to get bowl eligibility. Do you think he's okay if they get there? I think he's okay because I don't think Boston College fans are going out on Saturdays and be like, "This is terrible." Like that's you know that like competitive, competitive enough that I would even think a, a five and seven season. It's competitive enough, I think, to be okay. Yep. Indiana loses 31 to 14 at home to Rutgers. The student newspaper at Indiana, the Daily Hoosier, is saying Tom Allen needs to go. The price on that is $20 million. They're two and five. They stink. Are we done here with Tom Allen, you think? So, right, his contract, if they keep him one more year through 24, it's significantly easier to get out of, right? It's, but I think you are at the point of potentially like losing a generation of, of possible football fans that, this could go beyond apathy to like people actively turning against you to like not quite boycott level, but I think they might lose more money by trying to keep him one more year to not have to pay the contract. And I think there might be people in the administration and on the board of trustees and donors who make that decision. And I, I my guess, my guess would be it's over. West Virginia backs up a brutal loss at Houston with a 48 34 home loss to Oklahoma state. They are now four and three. Do we think that Neil Brown might be squarely back on the hot seat? So I just, there's some like West Virginia people I follow who like, it feels like all the goodwill of the four and one start is quickly evaporated. And now people are seeing that as a facade and sort of yelling at each other about how could you be tricked by that? I wasn't tricked. You know that we were on here saying like, Hey, Neil Brown, whoa, you saved it. But I feel like now, because there were a lot of doubts previously, and now what's happened the last two weeks, I think, is confirming all of those. And they do care about football there, and I, I think they have an opportunity. You know, I, I don't know where Indiana goes next. I think West Virginia would have a chance to like go get somebody. They tried to get yeah. somebody on the on the upswing with Neil Brown. It seems like it didn't work. Go take another swing. So I, I would guess, yeah, I think people have have said even the good stuff early. We don't believe anymore. Last one here, and this is different than the previous three. Um, Pitt is two and five. Lost 21-17 to Wake Forest this week. Probably should have won. They kind of got jobbed on a quarterback slide that was marked short of the sticks. Wake Forest gets the ball back and, and goes on the field and scores the game-winning touchdown to win 21-17. Pat Narduzzi is not on the hot seat, but he has botched quarterback since Kenny Pickett left. I think he botched his offensive coordinator hire. They've kind of spoiled having pretty good defenses there. He had nine wins last year. He had 11 wins the year before that, and they won the ACC, went to the uh, one of the, I think the Orange Bowl, was that it was, or Fiesta Bowl, I can't remember. Um, their next two games are against Notre Dame and Florida State. Then they play Syracuse, Boston College, and Duke. Like They are in jeopardy of having a losing season, which is rare at yeah. Pitt. They expect to win a lot of games. He's not on the hot seat now, but this feels like a, a little bit of a 
precarious spot for Pat Narduzzi, no? Yeah, I think we have to acknowledge that the 20, 20 wins the previous two years, like there weren't a, a ton of teams in college football who had 20 wins in those two years. Like that is, this is really, like a lot of places, you're so dependent now when you're in the portal for quarterbacks, if you miss, you're in trouble. And it, they, that's happened to them. So I do think it's reasonable to be at a reset with like, you've got to figure out some of your staffing issues. And I think they have to take a hard look about how they're evaluating and going about the quarterback position. But I think you, I think the administration, it's reasonable to make him take a hard look at what he's doing. Um, but I think he's, I think he's quite a ways away. I think he's maybe in need of a reset, but I think you still believe he can get that done. Yeah. I mean, one losing season does not undo yeah. 20 wins the previous two years. Yeah. All right. So that's our uh, flag planting sign stealing segment. When we come back, we'll start with the offense, the KOTN, all North offense. We'll do that next on Kings of the North. Doug Maurice and Bill Landis with your all North Kings of the North offense. 28 teams that we call our own here on Kings of the North. We wound up with uh, 14 of the 28 represented on this KOTN midseason team, Landis. We'll start on the offensive side of the ball at quarterback. And it came down to Michael Penix of Washington and J.J. McCarthy of Michigan. Before this last weekend, I think it's a slam dunk, Michael Penix. Yeah. Michael Penix had his worst game. He had a three-turnover game. J.J. McCarthy had a three-turnover game earlier in the year. This one's fresher in our mind. J.J. McCarthy is actually now the betting favorite for the Heisman. He passed Michael Penix. Michael Penix was minus odds going into this weekend. Heavy favorite. How much of a discussion for our quarterback spot do you think this was between Penix and McCarthy? Uh, I mean, a, a little bit, but I, I, the fact that Michael Penix had the four touchdown game in the win against Oregon was was a pretty easy trump card for me. Um, statistically, as you can see here on the screen, people watching on YouTube, like they stack up fairly well. JJ's got a better completion percentage. Touchdowns are similar. JJ's got fewer interceptions. Uh, Michael Penix has you know six hundred or so more yards than JJ does. Um, or 700 more yards. So like they're close enough in that regard that I think you could consider either one, but JJ just hasn't been put into a spot. You like the one that, that Michael Penix has put into against Oregon. So that was, that was rather easy for me. I think Penix 88 more passes this year. He's averaging 368 passing yards per game. JJ McCarthy is 225 passing yards per game. It really is just volume though. When you look at their average depth of target, it's very similar. When you look at yards per attempt, it's very similar. It's not that, J.J. McCarthy's making a bunch of easy short throws and Michael Penix is ripping it down the field. It's just Michigan doesn't throw it as much as Washington. Nobody throws it as much as Washington. I still think Penix was was pretty easy right now. I don't know by the end of the year, though. We'll have to see because, as to your point, Penix has had his biggest game and his chance to shine. J.J. McCarthy's going to get that chance against Penn State and Ohio State. And if he tears them up, he'll not only be – our all North quarterback, he might be the knight of the North and he might be the Heisman winner. Yeah, no, it's all, it's all on the table for him. If he performs in those games, absolutely. All right, let's go to our offensive line. Our left tackle is Notre Dame's Joe Alt. And our right tackle is Taliesa Fuaga of Oregon state. Uh, this means Olu Fashanu uh, from Penn state is not on our team. Landis. What did we think of our, our tackle decision here? Yeah, I mean, a little bit of consideration for Olu Fashanu, but I, I think, and, and it helps that you and I get to watch him with our own two eyes against Penn State or against Ohio State over the weekend. Um, his pass blocking, I think, on the year has been very good. His run blocking, less so. And I thought JT Tuimolowal gave him a little bit of a rough game uh, in the Ohio State game. And, and Joe Walt and 
Fuaga have just been solid all year. Like they would, uh, Joe Wallace may be a little more well-rounded, and Fuaga might have some more power to him in the run game and, and less polished as a pass protector than, than Joe Alt is. But I think these two guys are in the conversation for best tackles in the country. There was one other guy that I considered for the tackle spot that was AJ Cornelius at Oregon, mm-hmm. the transfer from he's from Rhode Island, right? Somebody? Yeah, yeah. Um, just having a really good year. Like that's a good offensive line. Um, we have a representative from that offensive line here on, on this team, but. Um, Cornelius has had a good season as well. So it was kind of like a four-man race, but I thought these two stood out. Fuaga is the highest-graded run blocker among tackles in all of the Power Five, not just the North. Uh, He had a play against Washington State where he got out and got a safety and blew him up on a big run and then dove on top of the safety to finish him off and got a 15-yard penalty for it and was like kind of walking back to the line of scrimmage, raising his hand like, yeah, that's on me. He is a super violent, aggressive run blocker, but he also has really good feet. We would have been okay taking two left tackles here, but the fact that Alt is a left tackle and Fuaga is a right tackle kind of evens it out. So I think we we were in unison on... Alton Fuaga here at tackle. We felt pretty good about that. I'll let you talk about the guards because that's what you were born to do. <laughs> I mean, Zach Zinter from Michigan is one of our guards. I think he's probably the best guard in the country. Um, he's been a stalwart on on perhaps the best offensive line in the country for the last couple of years. Uh, Michigan's O line is playing very well this year. He's having a good season. I just think like he kind of he kind of does it all, but he's also like the leader and tone center for um, a really good group. And then the other guard spot I actually thought was a little difficult because there wasn't like a slam dunk. Um, we ended up going with Christian Mahogany from Boston College, which you know people might say like Boston College. Boston College's interior offensive line is actually pretty good. Um, maybe less so at tackle, and there's a lot to some other deficiencies on that team, but they do they do have some decent offensive linemen up there. And Mahogany's had a good season, like grade wise. If you want to look at PFF, I think he stacks up. Um, he's the fourth or fifth highest graded guard in, in the north um right behind zach zinter has not given up a ton of pressures is a pretty good run blocker um and a guy who i think is going to have some pretty decent nfl draft stock too so um looked at tanner miller from oregon state um looked a little bit at luke kendra at cincinnati but i thought that it was, zach zinter i thought was a slam dunk and then christian mahogany was a little bit of a kind of rose above a, a pool of maybe three or four other guys yeah, I'm glad Miller and Kander, I think, were the other two guys in the mix. So I, I think we landed on the right guy, uh, guys, though, here at guard. And the center is Jackson Powers Johnson from Oregon. He's allowed one pressure the entire year. There are seven centers in the North who have allowed double-digit pressures. Um, he's the fulcrum of that Oregon offensive line. Really highly graded. I think he, you know, Drake Nugent's had a really good year at Michigan, but I think Powers Johnson was kind of a slam dunk here, too, right? Yeah, um, Nugent was the only other one that I looked at. Um, but Powers Johnson was like a borderline All-American last year, I think, is playing to that level this year. I thought he had a good game against Washington earlier this year. He got hurt at the end. I was like a little worried that he might be out for a while, but he came back in like two plays later, I think, and, and kept going on an injured ankle, I think it was. So just, yeah, just a good player, like solid, smart, which is important at that position, um, and, and one of the better guys in the country for sure. All right, let's go to our running back spots. And we did an all-purpose spot. We kind of copied how the AP does its All-American team. So we picked two running backs, and then we put another running back at the all-purpose spot. Our running backs are Audric Estime of Notre Dame and Damian Martinez of Oregon State. And then we put Bucky Irving of Oregon at the all-purpose spot. 
Uh, Bucky Irving. Well, Audric Estime has 787 rushing yards. That fir- that's first in the North. Damian Martinez has 676. That's fourth in the North. And Bucky Irving has 667. That's fifth in the North. Um, Bucky Irving averages 7.6 yards per carry, which is like through the roof. Estime and Martinez are both over six. We're always going to have a bunch of great running backs in the North, Landis, right? Braylon Allen of Wisconsin in this mix. Blake Quorum of Michigan, obviously, in this mix. A couple other guys, but I think the three we picked have kind of separated themselves both in workload, explosiveness, explosiveness and consistency. Like Blake Corum's 5.5 yards per carry, and these other guys are a yard and a half, two yards past that. Yeah, I, I, it's a really good group. Um, if I, I, This is the position that maybe most wish I think that we could have had a second team here because I think there are some other guys worth mentioning. You touched on a couple. Kyle Manungai at Rutgers. Yep. I know I, I mentioned him last week. He's having a great season. He has seven rushing touchdowns this year. He's got uh, 144 carries, which is the most of any running back in the North. He's got 744 rushing yards, which is the second most of anybody in the North. Like He's having an awesome season, and I almost feel bad for leaving him off this list. But um, Aldrich Estime, like is the Notre Dame offense, I think, in a lot of ways. like he, He's the engine that makes that go. Um, Damian Martinez, you know, he might benefit from having a really good offensive line. That might be a, a you know a fair point to make, but I think he's electric. He um, is electric. Yeah. yeah, both both Estime and Martinez are really good after contact. And then Bucky Irving's like, you know, he just does it all, man. He's top ten in the country in, in yards from scrimmage. Um, leads the North in yards from scrimmage. Had a monster game last week against Washington State. So um, I'm glad we were able to include him in here too. Yeah, we put him at all purpose because he catches the ball so well. It's not yeah. a nod that like we think like, oh, he's third. I think I think you could almost flip a coin for these three running backs, but I think they separated themselves from the the Quorum Allen Manungi kind of second team list that we could have gone to. Tight end is tough. Tight yeah. end is tough. And it was basically a coin flip between Mitchell Evans of Notre Dame, Colston Loveland of Michigan, and Cade Stover of Ohio State. They are the three leading tight ends in in Receiving yards, Stover's first. Um, so Stover was our pick, but we certainly could have gone the other way with either of the other two guys. Yeah, and, and like the blocking stuff is hard for us to quantify. I think we we rely on pro football focus a little bit to figure that out, and those grades are, are fairly similar. Um, Kate Stover has just been so important to Ohio State's offense um, through these first seven games, these first seven, eight weeks of the season, that I felt like that they gave him a little bit of an edge. But like Mitchell Evans is awesome. Colston Loveland is awesome. There's some really good tight ends in the North. Like we, Aronde Gadsden at, at Syracuse is a great player. He's just been hurt all year. I think if had he been healthy, he'd be in this conversation. Eric All and Luke Lachey at, at Iowa, I think are really good yep. players too. So this is a very deep position group, but um, Kate Stover to me has just been a little more impactful for his team's offense. Yeah, he's their second most important offensive player behind Marvin Harrison Jr. So I, I think that's why Stover got the edge. But if somebody wanted to argue with us, we'd we'd acknowledge that Loveland or Evans could be there too. Let's go to receiver. And I think this was pretty easy, for, very easy for the first two spots. Roma Dunze from Washington and Marvin Harrison Jr. from Ohio State, I think are probably the two best receivers in the country. I guess Malik Neighbors mm-hmm. at LSU might have an argument, but they are the top. Um, actually, they're not the top two. Roma Dunze is leading the North with 818 receiving yards. Marvin Harrison Jr. is third with 765. And then the guy we put at the third receiver spot, I thought it was a little closer in that battle, but it was Troy Franklin of Oregon. He's second in the North in receiving yards with 768. So for these three spots, Landis, first team receivers, three of them, we went with the three guys who have the most receiving yards in the North. That isn't why we did it, but it kind of matched up nicely that I think just in terms of impact, consistency, explosion, these are the top three. 
Yeah, it's not, it's not mere production. It's it's impact. The word you use, like these guys show up in the big games. They they are the not maybe not the sole reason they win their big games, but but perform to the level you expect them to in the big games. And and Marvin having the 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 three game run that he's on right now in the performance against Penn State. Not that he was in any kind of jeopardy. I think of not being here, but um, it it certainly solidified. If anyone had any doubts, like this guy, I think is the best in the country. Certainly the best in the North. Um, the third spot that you're right. There were some other candidates there. Like, do you think about one of the Colorado guys? Do you think about one of the Washington state guys? Um, Isaiah Williams at, at Illinois is a guy we've talked about before, just like very productive and an otherwise not very good offense. So there were, there were some Wilson's other, been really important for me. Yeah. Excellent at Michigan. Yeah. And even like the other Washington guys too, I think like Jalen Polk probably could have gotten some consideration yeah. here. Um, maybe Keandre Lambert Smith, if he had a better game against, Ohio State than, than he did um, this past weekend but I, Troy Franklin I think kind of rose above a, a, a group of guys that you would consider for that third spot but it is it is a rather deep position and the last part of our offense is the kicker and I think this one was pretty clear and the guy nailed it down this past Saturday Dragon Kessich from Minnesota he kicked the game winner against uh, Nebraska in the season opener and now Minnesota is coming off a 12-10 win over Iowa where all their points were four field goals by him. He did miss one, but he made one, then he missed one, then he made three at the end of the game, 43, 44, 28, and 31 yards to lead Minnesota to that victory is 10 of 11 on field goals uh, for the season. Big leg, and I think we, we've we talked about him on a previous show. I think he had to be the guy. Yeah, he had to be the guy. He's 14 to 16 this year. Um, long of 54, he's been fairly accurate from deep, and yeah, he's won Minnesota two games, so he had to be the guy. And plus, he's just cool, man. And he's got a great name. Yeah, he's got a great name. All right, that is our offense. Um, I think it kind of slid together pretty nicely. Um, Defense might have a couple more guys that we feel kind of bad for leaving off the list, but uh, this is you know this is real stuff, man. We're not. This is no freebies here. That's right. On the KOT and All North team, we'll get back to the defensive side of the ball after this. Back with the Kings of the North. All defense team, and we'll start at edge with I think the easiest guy, the slam slammiest dunk of this. We've talked about him a lot when we've done our best player rankings. That's Jonah Ellis of Utah. He has ten sacks. That's first in the North. Um, he is the driving force of an overachieving and excellent Utah team, and he was a no doubt about it guy, Landis. And then the second edge spot I think was up in the air going into this past weekend, and then somebody kind of locked it down. Yeah, I mean, JT Tulumolo had a, had a monster game against Penn State, but he's also played really well for like the last few weeks. In his last three games, he has um, 16 pressures and four sacks. Like, he's really turned it on. He's looked like a guy that I think a lot of Ohio State fans have been wanting to see. And I think um, people outside of Columbus have been sort of questioning why he's so highly regarded. And I think he's shown us that the last three weeks. Not that he's been a bad player prior to that, but he's just kind of upped the production in a way that I thought gave him an edge here over a really good group of defensive ends in the North, right? The Penn State guys we don't have here. Um, Michigan's got pretty good ends. So like there, there are other guys we could have considered, but I thought I thought JT and Jonah Ellis were were fairly easy at this juncture. Braylon Trice of uh, Washington is a really good player. I think Kydron Jenkins at Purdue, I think leads mm-hmm. the North in pressures. Um, multiple dudes here, but but the game Tui Molova just had, I think, put him over the top. Defensive tackle. Um, we had some initial disagreement here. I think there's probably a top four, and we had to pick two. 
Uh, I want to throw Dante Corleone of Cincinnati as a guy that I think yeah. deserves at least a little discussion. Chris Jenkins at Michigan, I think deserves a little discussion. But the four, I think it came down to is Tyleek Williams of Ohio State, Howard Cross of Notre Dame, Mason Graham at Michigan, and Johnny Newton at Illinois. We picked Newton and Graham. Why? Johnny Newton, I think, is just maybe the best defensive tackle in the country. Um, and he gets... I don't know if overlooked is the right word because Illinois is not very good this year, but his impact on games is incredible. Like he dominated in the Penn State game. I thought he dominated in the Wisconsin game, even though Illinois ended up losing that game. He's been as productive as you want him to be as a guy who came into the season with like all American consideration and a guy who's going to be a first round draft pick. And he's doing it while playing basically every meaningful defensive snap for Illinois. So I think he's first. I think, I think he had to be here. And then we honestly got into a spot where we initially maybe only had one Michigan player on our entire team and for a team that's like the best team in the North. And we'll have our team rankings right after this. And that just seemed wrong. I do think if we did a second team, Michigan might have six or seven guys on the second team. They have a lot of guys who are very high level players, but maybe aren't quite, you know, the best guy or one of the top two guys at their position. But I think trying to like fairly represent What's happened in Northern football helped lead us to Mason Graham of Michigan over Howard Cross of Notre Dame at this spot. Howard Cross has played 392 snaps. Mason Graham's only played 161. But you think maybe Mason Graham is Michigan's best player? I do think he's their best player. Um, on, on a team full of good players, I think he's their best. They have excellent defensive tackles. They might have the best defensive tackle group in the country with him and Chris Jenkins and Kenneth Grant. Like All three of those guys are playing really well. But this is partly influenced, I think, by some of this discussion I heard around Michigan when Mason Graham missed some time and then came back into the lineup and Jim Harbaugh was like, oh, thank God we got this guy back. Like He changes everything for us. And he's played really well. If you extrapolate his numbers, which maybe isn't fair, but if you extrapolate his pr- production to this point over a workload of someone like a Tyleek Williams or a Johnny Newton, I think he would stack up very favorably, if not better. Like He's been productive. He just hasn't played a ton. Um, but I think when he plays, he is among the most impactful defensive tackles in the country. So we just had to rep Michigan. So I think, you know, if, if Howard Cross kind of won the the Duke game almost by himself, I think he had seven pressures from an interior defensive line spot for Notre Dame in that game. So like he has been, he has been a force, but we only yeah. have two spots, man. So he was really good against Ohio State, too. Yeah. All right. Linebacker. Um, this was another one. I just sort of was pounding the table for Abdul Carter statistically PFF grade. Like he's not up there with a bunch of other guys, but I thought watching Penn state through the course of the year. And I thought it'd get on Saturday. I just think like getting after the quarterback playing coverage, running sideline to sideline. I, I just think he is sort of like the guy who makes that Penn state defense go. And I think he's better than his stat show. So we do have him here. We have Jay Higgins, who's a tackling machine at Iowa and leads the North in tackles by a million. And then you were very clear on who you wanted this third linebacker to be. I wanted a representative for Rutgers defense. Um, Rutgers defense has been excellent this year. It's it's the reason that Rutgers is bowl eligible. Um, And there's a few few good players on that defense. I I picked Mohamed Ture, their linebacker. He's the captain of the defense. He missed last year with an ACL injury prior to that. The, the two seasons prior to that, he led Rutgers in sacks. <clears throat> he does not have a ton of sacks this year, but he does lead all Northern linebackers in pressures. Um, he's a fairly short tackler. He doesn't rack up double-digit tackets per game like Jay Higgins does, but but he's a, a, a good tackler and, and a guy just, just like 
I think makes that defense go a little bit. Like he's he's the guy that I think they all turn to when they're trying to get stuff figured out. And I I did really I think it was important to have Rutgers representation here as a nod to them for how well their defense has played this year. No, I think that's fair. Um, J.D. Bertrand at Notre Dame, worth talking about. Aaron Casey at Indiana. Yep. It's been really made some splash plays for the Hoosiers. The, the Michigan linebackers are really good. You know, the Ohio State linebackers were really good last year. Last year, they're not quite as good this year, but they're still very good players. So, again, this is one of those things. We're, we're doing an all-North team. We're never going to have a shortage of running backs and linebackers. So yep. this is just kind of how this works. But with Jay Higgins, man, like they're just on the field constantly at Iowa with that defense. And so you've got to acknowledge a guy who just gets it done. Uh, safety. Tyler Newbin from Minnesota is a guy that has been kind of dancing around when we've done our our top 10 players at times. You know, we used to do a top 15 list and like he pops in there. He is just like he can change a game. So I think Tyler Newbin is the best safety in the North. I think we agreed on that. And then we got into some, again, I think Josh Proctor from Ohio State has played really well. I think Xavier Wampa at Iowa is a great young safety. Flip Dixon at Rutgers is a guy, again, as we were considering Rutgers people. But we wound up going with a guy from Wisconsin as our second safety. Yeah, Hunter Wohler, um, another guy who I th- had a spark last year, then got hurt, and then came back and was like kind of a backup. But I think everyone in Madison was very high on what he could become, and what he's become is like their most prolific defensive player on on a defense. It's like you know they're not great, but they're okay. Um, I think it's the better side of the ball for Wisconsin un- under Luke Fickle at, at the moment. Um, Hunter Waller is second in tackles among players in the North. He only trails Jay Higgins. So like he's just kind of getting the job done back there. And I don't know. There wasn't like a, another guy who just like screamed out to me, like needs to yeah. be on this team at safety. Once we got past Tyler Newbin at Minnesota. So I was okay with maybe going a little off the radar here again, in the name of having a little more inclusion and, and some more representation from all of our teams. But it's not like, like Hunter Waller, Waller is a good player. Like I'd put his production up against any other safety in the country. All right, corner, I think this was pretty clear. Cooper DeGene from Iowa. People saw he had the punt return that got that would have won the game against Minnesota that got wiped out. He's also an unbelievable defensive back. Like people were ready to make a Cooper DeGene Heisman case if that punt return had held up. He's yep. he's an incredible, versatile player. And then Denzel Burke, I think, you know, he was hurt this last week and did not play against Penn State and Ohio State played very well defensively without him because they have some other really good corners. But I think Denzel Burke had played as well as any cornerback in the country uh, while he was healthy. Certainly, Benjamin Morrison at Notre Dame deserves some consideration here. TJ Tampa at Iowa State graded really high. Um, Jabbar Muhammad at Washington is a really good player. Kalen King at Penn State is a really good player. Did not have the world's best game against Marvin Harrison Jr. Is not as graded high this year. But I think I think DeGene and Burke kind of separated themselves. Yeah, Mike Sainer still at Michigan was another guy we talked yep. about for this spot. Um, I think they've separated themselves too. DeGene certainly, I don't know, maybe Denzel Burke is less front of mind for people outside of this podcast because he didn't play this past week against Penn State, but he's still, I believe, second in the North and, and passes broken up. Um, teams just haven't been able to throw on him. So like, even though he didn't miss the game, um, I didn't want to knock, knock him for that. So then we added an extra defensive back spot, which is kind of like the all-purpose spot on offense. And and I had brought up initially, like, would this be a place to put Travis Hunter? Because Travis Hunter playing both ways the first two weeks for Colorado was unbelievable. He was like the story of the college football season for the first two weeks. Then he got hurt. 
Then when he came back, they probably played him too much right away, and he didn't play very well at corner. And Sione Vaki from Utah has kind of come in and done that dual role thing the last couple of weeks, even better than Travis Hunter did it. He played 70 snaps on defense uh, in the win over USC. He played 19 snaps on offense. And then those 19 snaps of offense, he had 217 yards. So now it's like this idea of Travis Hunter is an amazing football player, but he might not even be the best two-way player in the Pac-12 right now. We put Sione Vaki on this team. What this guy has done the past couple of weeks is absolutely through the roof. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's Salt Lake Travis Hunter. Um, yeah, he's like he's a good safety. I don't know that would would have considered him merely on his safety play. Like Cole Bishop at Utah is also an excellent safety. Maybe if he wanted a Utah guy, we might have leaned Cole Bishop's way in the secondary. But the fact that Sione Vaki just you know two weeks ago decided I'm going to play offense now and then became like one of the most explosive offensive players of the teams that we cover is is a bit absurd. And he did it as a rusher two weeks ago. He did it as a receiver last week against USC. Like it's blowing my mind what they're doing now. I I, I suddenly feel very different about Utah's offense because of this guy. And I know this is a defensive team, but we wanted to find some way I think to to give a tip of the cap to that kind of versatility and a guy helping out his team in that way. Because I'm not sure there's a guy in the north who's helping his team out more than Sione Baki is right now. I'd love to have Travis Hunter on here somewhere. He was so impactful early on as a lacerated kidney, right? Get on a on a kind of a I don't know, kind of on a dirty play and then like forgives the guy who hit him and does a video with him and then comes back and I mean, he has been an an unbelievable representative. He was the number 1 recruit in his class, took an unusual path, you know, didn't go to Florida State when everybody thought so, went to Jackson State, now followed Deion Sanders to Colorado. He is like what college football is all about right now. And I I so wish he hadn't gotten hurt. Um, so we wanna we wanna like give a nod. And again, we've talked about the Colorado receiving crew. They have so many guys, it's hard to pick one. Shadur Sanders has also been unbelievable, but you know, Michael Penix and JJ McCarthy and Bo Nix and a lot of other guys like that exist. So uh no Colorado guys on our team. Um, we did represent 14 different teams, and we also picked the Iowa punter. Yeah, well, he deserves it. Yeah. He's awesome. Yeah. Like, you can make fun of the Iowa, like the idea of like punt to win, but at least then they get the best punter. And Tory Taylor, 45.6 net, is first in the North. Um, he has 23 punts inside the 20, which is great. And he has 54 punts overall, which is the most in college football. So he's the busiest and he's also awesome. He's a weapon. As much anything you want to do to like sort of mock Iowa, their punter is a weapon. And so Taylor is absolutely the guy here and he deserves it. And um, now we can make Iowa punting jokes, but he's not a joke. He is not a joke. He it's, he's fourth in the country in punting average, and the difference between the top four is like a yard or two. But he has punted twenty four more times than the guy who was number one in the country yeah. in punting average. If they had a bad punter, they might have two wins. Yeah. So like he he is super valuable to what Iowa does. So that's our team. We wind up with four Ohio State guys, three each from Oregon and Iowa. Two each from Washington, Notre Dame, Oregon State, Michigan, Minnesota, and Utah, and one each from Illinois, Penn State, Boston College, Rutgers, and Wisconsin. So I don't think you'll find another team like this. We're trying to be as representative. A lot of this stuff, we want to reward and acknowledge excellent individual play, but we also want to sort of make sure we are capturing what Northern College football has been like so far this season. So we tried to do that. 
on our all north team and uh we'll make bomber jackets probably eventually right bomber Ooh, jackets. can i get one yeah i was definitely i was at a high school football game on a friday night and like looking at varsity jackets and stuff and i was like i would totally rock a kotn varsity jacket yeah i'm surprised you don't have one already if i'm being honest i know we need to come up with a final color scheme and then once we have a color scheme we're going to paint my wall and then we're going to order jackets <laughs> and then we're going to ask our boss if that's okay <laughs> uh the jackets have been ordered we guessed on your size here's the bill um <laughs> But yeah, no, we that's uh, you know we're, we got things coming, so we have to have a team. We have to have our own team. So we're glad to do our first uh, midseason KOTN All North team. When we come back, we will do our weekly best team rankings of the North next on Kings of the North. Time for our team rankings here on Kings of the North Land. As we rank whoever deserves to be ranked, but we've kind of fallen into this group of eight that we've sort of been moving around. Um, there hasn't been anyone, you know, once Colorado fell out of it, Washington State fell out of it. Wisconsin has not yet risen up to deserve to be in it. Nobody else in the Big Ten has. Um, it's been a, a pretty consistent group, but we did have a change at the top this week, and that's because we have a tie. And we have a tie between Ohio State and Michigan at number one in our team rankings. We have Washington third, Oregon fourth, Oregon State fifth, Penn State sixth, Utah seventh, and Notre Dame eighth. I voted Ohio State first. You voted Michigan first. Strength of record, which is like strength of schedule is just who you played. So you might have the number one strength of schedule in the country, and but you might be 0-7. It's like, wow, your strength of schedule is like, well, yeah, that's because why you, why you lost all the time. Strength of record is taking your strength of schedule into account, but then also saying like, okay, this is your record. How good is that record? Ohio State has the number one strength of record in the country to be undefeated against this schedule. Michigan is ninth. And so we've gone back and forth. Is this a power rating? Is this a resume vote? To me, the fact that Ohio State now has two wins over Notre Dame and Penn State that dwarf anything that Michigan has led me to put Ohio State first this week. But I totally get on the idea of Michigan is rolling people, keeping Michigan first. How did you arrive at your conclusion? I thought about it for a long time, like which side to err on. Um, the resume ranking or the power rating kind of thing. Um, trying to be consistent, and I feel like I have leaned more power rating the last few weeks than I have than, than otherwise. So that's why I kept Michigan one. But you're right about Ohio State's wins for sure. Like, you know, no one no one has better wins than Ohio State. And like we talk about controlling games and like being that like Ohio State, I think, has controlled games, right? They're just not scoring a ton of points, but I do think they've controlled games in a just in a different way than Michigan has too. So I think that's worthy of consideration. Um, it's just the fact that Michigan's been so, so dominant and lopsided in all of their wins. Like, granted, the schedule's not been strong, but that's why I kept Michigan there. But it was very close for me. I would have voted Ohio State number one this week if I had an AP ballot. I think yeah. Ohio State got five first place votes. Michigan, I think, has like 25 first place votes, something like that. So, um, based on that resume thing, I would have had Ohio State first. But I think we understand, people understand where we are with that vote and why they're tied for first. Washington is third because Washington almost lost. Washington got lucky. And what happened with Washington, there are times when Washington's rolling where you look at Washington and I say, why doesn't Ohio State do that? And then there are games that Washington has like on Saturday, and I think Ryan Day looks at it and says, that's why <laughs> we don't do that. Washington, their running backs had nine carries for 19 yards. Is that right? 
Yeah, I think that's right. They ran it 13 times total for 13 yards. Yep. Like they they did nothing. And in a game where the offensive line was having trouble, Michael pressure uh, Penix got pressured on 14 of his 42 dropbacks. That's a third of the time. They had three turnovers, and then like you don't have a run game to turn to, and so they win because they get an 89-yard pick six in the middle of the fourth quarter when Arizona State, who's the worst team in the Pac-12, is up 7-6 and marching in for another score. Instead, Washington is running it back the other way for a pick six. The offense does nothing. The best offense in the country does nothing against a bad team. Arizona is the team that's surprising everybody in the Pac-12. Not Arizona State. Hmm. Arizona State's terrible. They're 1-6. and So... They they had a, a lot of trouble protecting Michael Penix in this one, and then they were just off. And I've, I was a little bit of a shock to the system how vulnerable they looked and how lucky they got. Do you think Michael Penix is hurt? What makes you say that? Because he got beat up in the Oregon game. And like I, there was a point in the, at the end of the Oregon game where I was unsure if Michael Penix was going to like come back into the game. Um and this was their first game since then, right? Um, I don't know. He just looked a little jittery to me, like yeah, um, unsure of things. I don't know if that's an injury thing or or just feeling out of sorts because your offensive line was getting worked a little bit. But I don't. Something seemed off with him. I don't know if that's health or or, or what. Um, but this is why running the football is important. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because because teams can just drop eight on every play, and sometimes it's hard to throw against that. I feel like there's a, a possibility that Ryan Day is going to like distribute the Washington box score. <laughs> yeah. Maybe just to me this week could be like, here, this, this is why Penn State. I thought this was Penn State's kind of now or never moment moment this week against Ohio State. James Franklin is now one and nine against Ohio State in his career. And he was asked after the game by our good friend Dave Jones, who is the man to ask these kind of questions. Like, hey, man, you're one and nine against Ohio State. Like, is that kind of not the defining thing about you? Like, why shouldn't we judge you on that? And James Franklin said, like, I totally get it. I think it's a fair question. Like, he wasn't going to go big picture in that moment, but he does get it. I I think James Franklin's done a pretty good job at Penn State. That game, I think, opened up a new set of questions for me about what Penn State is and where it's trying to go. Now they do have a core. They have the most talented quarterback they've had ever under James Franklin. And he's a first year starter and a second year player. And he's going to be better next year as a third year player and second year starter. But that they didn't have a better plan offensively, um, that they didn't come in raring to go. You know, John Cooper was 210 and one, right? Ohio State versus Michigan. Like James Franklin is approaching that territory in the Penn State-Ohio State rivalry, and it, at some point you are defined yeah. by your biggest game. And the Ohio State game is Penn State's biggest game, and I thought it opened up a new set of questions, or at least took the old questions and put them in bold type. Yeah, I think I think it amplified them, but I, to me it's a similar conversation to Ryan Day in Michigan. So like, this is the thing. like You have a hard time beating this team. But next year you're still going to make the playoff. So like I, like, I don't know... I don't know where that leaves you if you're Penn State. Right? Well, but of, I mean the di- the difference. I think there is a the difference between one and nine and one and two. Sure, no, I, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. Ryan Day is not quite the, but it's just like a, 
it's the it's the hypothetical people ask with Ryan Day, like, what if he just what if this is who he is against Michigan? It's like, well, I see it's still going to make the playoff and have a really good chance of winning the national championship every year. So, like, what do you do with that information? Um, and like, Penn State is not positioned like Ohio State, but they are going to be positioned to make the playoff more often than not, even if they lose to Ohio State every year from now until we stop playing college football, right? Uh, is Penn State definitely like the third best team in the new Big Ten? If Michigan and Ohio State are the top two, and now here comes USC, Oregon, and Washington, like where's Penn State? I think the idea that the Penn State that the Big Ten gets in three, maybe four playoff teams every year is absolutely true. Will Penn State be one of the three or four best teams in the Big Ten more than half the time? I have a question about that because it's not just Ohio State. Yeah, it's sort big of like games. big games, good yeah. teams. Yeah. James Franklin doesn't have a great record. Yeah, no, that's 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 a good point. Um, I think I think that's right. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'm I'm overstating Penn State's positioning here. Um, I think like program wise, they're they're they have better sustainability. I think than maybe in Oregon or or at least Washington. Like I need to see more for Washington. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know where he leaves you with James Franklin. Like I, I thought like his game management in the big games and stuff you call him the question. And like he's not the one calling the plays, but he's like the one who okays whether or not Mike Yersich can call three double passes in one game. And he was like, "Yeah, I guess we can do that because nothing else is working." It was just like they, they. I'm not. I don't know that they should have won that game. Like a lot of a lot of the rhetoric on the Penn State side of things was that Penn State should have won that game. I don't know. I don't think I agree with that. Penn State definitely could have won that game. Um, it was there for the taking up until the last drive, I guess, when Ohio State scored its last touchdown to go up twenty to six. Um, but stuff like getting a lucky bounce on a punt and then getting the ball at midfield when you thought you were kind of done, and then your first play after that is let's try another double pass. It's like, what are we doing here? Like, what? How is that the feel you have for this game at the moment? It was just poorly managed, and it was probably the worst example of his game management I think that I've seen in this in this matchup. Yeah, I think two things can be true, which is. A lot of credit to Ohio State in that game, especially on the defensive side of the ball, obviously. To hold Penn State to one of 16 on third downs is wild, man. That is crazy good. But I don't think Penn State played its best game. Now, they the best play that Penn State made got wiped out by a penalty. It would have been a, mm -hmm. a fumble return for a touchdown. I think it would have made it 13. Now, what would have made it? I think Penn it State would have gone ahead. I think it would have made it 10-6. Okay, so Penn State would have gone ahead, and that got wiped out. It was a legitimate penalty on Penn State. Um, so that was a bad break for them and a very lucky break for Ohio State. But again, I think that idea that the muffed punt trick play, they had a, a sequence where they had two good throws to the tight ends. The second one was a 30-plus yard gain, and they ran a double reverse flea flicker at the 28-yard line right when they had momentum from that. I thought, they didn't, I thought Mike Yersich didn't have any feel for the game calling plays offensively there was no artistry to that play calling and it was a slog against a an excellent ohio state defense but man they made it feel every bit of that it made it feel impossible for drew aller it, you know and the one time they schemed a tight end open they immediately followed the trick play they score a light touchdown the two-point plays a trick play like it just no no belief no feel when they do have some good offensive pieces yeah. They have a they have an NFL left tackle. They have two very good running backs. They have two solid tight ends, and they have a young, talented quarterback who has a good arm, and and a and a decent number one receiver. And like it just it felt like it looked too much like Iowa the whole time. So I thought, and again, I think there was a it was a moment. Your own forty five yard line, fourth and one, yeah. and uh, James Franklin. It's in the late in the first quarter. 
and James Franklin decides to punt. They throw it on third and one, and it's actually a pretty good call. It's like a little pick play against zero coverage, and if they complete the little slant, it's probably a touchdown. Yeah. But instead, the blitzing safety, Josh Proctor, gets his hand on it. But to me, if you're if you're running that play, you're running like a let's hit him touchdown play on third and one, basically at midfield in a tie game. It's three three. That you have to go on fourth and one, and they called timeout and then punted. And I thought that was James Franklin's moment, man. And I don't know why. I don't know why he didn't go for it. Like you have to come in to win that game. And then okay, if you give Ohio State a short field, you believe in your defense. But that was I thought that was a huge moment early in the game. Yeah, I thought that was him telling telling his players he didn't have the belief that they could get a yard. Um, the fumble that was called back, by the way, would have would have made a 10-3 Penn State. Instead, Ohio State kept the ball, went down and scored, and went up 10-3 itself. Um, that punt was terrible for Penn State. And I like just generally, they they've been a pretty good short yardage rushing team all year. And Ohio mm-hmm. State's defense actually like has been just kind of okay in that area because it's hard to defend. I want to say they had four third and ones or third and twos in this game. I think they threw three times. Um, they didn't like just try to line up and do the thing they've done well all year in those situations. And then I think all but one of those times they opted to just punt on fourth and short after that instead of like keeping the pedal down and going forward. So yeah, just no feel, no real aggression or like missed, like not channeling your aggression, right? Like I don't like trick plays to me are not being aggressive. No. Trick, trick plays to me are like acts of desperation in a game. You, yeah. don't think you have a chance to win. So, um, just bad, bad all around. Those two two tight end throws, go tempo and run it. Run it down Ohio State's throat. You get a you get a muff punt in your past midfield, try to run it nine times and, and get all the way in. Like do like like be aggressive with what you do best. They've been running the ball on people all year. I just thought I thought it was a, a coaching effort that felt like they didn't have any feel for their own team, which is how can you play it it would have been the biggest win in a decade at Penn State. And they came in and felt like they didn't know who they were. And I think that's a failure of coaching. So I've seen other people push back on that. Like, hey, Ryan Day certainly had some questionable calls. I think he should have kicked the field goal late on the fourth and two they went for and didn't get. That would have put Ohio State up two scores. If Ohio State lost, we would have been talking a lot about that. I thought that that was a wrong read by Ryan Day. And one team had Marvin Harrison Jr. and one didn't. But I thought even within that, it's it's not necessarily about winning or losing. It's about in a big moment, do you play your best? Do you put your players in the best position to win? And I thought Penn State failed in that regard. Yeah, they did. And part of it, too, was it juxtaposed to, I think, Jim Knowles, like really having his finger on the pulse of what was happening and calling the right stuff, too. Like part, part of it is Ohio State making Penn State look bad and I think just being one step ahead of them the entire time. But the plan the, coming into the game just seemed flawed from the jump for Penn State. All right. Ohio State, Michigan tied at the top. Um, you know, people can make moves here. We'll see what Washington looks like. Again, Washington, they're they're maybe beat up from that big Oregon win and obviously like a huge emotional letdown spot. You go from a gigantic win to the worst team in the Pac-12. So we'll see how Washington uh, bounces back. And uh, Oregon and Utah, we'll talk about them later. They each have a chance to show us something this week. All right, when we come back, it's time for what some people say is the greatest segment on any college football show in the country. It's the Brian Ferentz Survivor Show, next on Kings of the North. So I was considering, Landis, making the Brian Ferentz Survivor Show sort of have like a different theme every week, because last week we kind of went inspiring, right? Mm -hmm. I thought we could do like a horror theme, uh, maybe like a a buddy (laughs) comedy, like, you know, a dad and a son reuniting on a road trip through a college football season. But then I thought that would just probably annoy people. So uh, you mentioned (laughs) student papers, man. Student papers. <laughs> so Iowa loses 12-10 to Minnesota on Saturday. Um, 
Iowa is 10 of 28 passing for 116 yards, but they have 22 rushes for 11 yards. <laughs> they average 0. 0.4 yards per carry. And the Daily Iowan, <laughs> the Iowa student newspaper, giving out grades after the game. I think they gave A's to passing offense. No, excuse me. not the, They gave A's to passing defense, rushing defense, and special teams. All A's. Um, passing offense, they gave a D minus. And rushing offense, they gave an F minus, which is sometimes you just get a student journalist. They're, they're, they're in their bag, man, and they are feeling it. Um, the big talk this week is that I was on a bye this week, and traditionally they have the coordinators available to the media on the bye week. That's not happening this oh. bye week. And I think sometimes like when journalists get all wound up about access, like they didn't make players. You know, USC didn't make players available after the Utah loss. It's not great, but I don't know that like, journalists screaming about it is the thing that like college football fans want to hear. Right. So whatever, you don't get to talk to Brian Ferentz, but like it's a sign, right? And then the bigger, the bigger thing is they've created a situation where every tiny little thing is viewed as a sign. But the guy that I kind of want to talk about on this Brian Ferentz survivor show, they call it the March to 325. They have to score 25 points a game in 13 games this season so that he can keep his job. If he doesn't score 25 points a game, it's in his contract that Brian Ferentz is not going to be back next year. Right now, they are averaging barely over 19 points per game. It is not very good nationally. It's 118th at 19.5 points per game. They need to average more than 33 points per game the rest of the way to hit this threshold. Which they're not going to do. So, like, if it, like it's now the, the most interesting thing is, will they actually do it? And then will Kirk Ferentz leave with his kid if they actually say, if they live up to the bargain? So, like, the idea of will they get to 25 points a game, there's zero chance of that happening at this point. Oh, wow. But I want to talk about Dan Enos. You know who Dan Enos is, your friend and mine. Dan Enos? It's not Enos, like Enos from uh, Dukes of Hazard. Say Enos. Okay. Like the, yeah, the offensive coordinator who just got canned in Arkansas. Is that Enos? No, it's Enos. For real? Yeah, he's the guy who like no. was at Alabama and then just like ghosted Nick Saban, yeah. just like left one day. Yeah. On Dukes of Hazard, there was a, uh, <clears throat> uh, my cousin Enos was like the, the deputy to Roscoe P. Coltrane. You watch, well, you're too young for Dukes of Hazard though, right? Did not watch Dukes of Hazard. No. No, uh, no everyone knows. Yeah. Okay. So Dan Enos, uh -huh. not Enos. Yeah, if his knows, last name was like, Ference, he'd still have a job. Yeah, he, he doesn't knows. have a job anymore because he was the offensive coordinator at Arkansas and he got fired yeah. this week. Actually, former Ohio State quarterback Kenny Guyton, who's the receivers coach at Arkansas, is going to get to call plays the rest of the year, which is an exciting opportunity for Kenny Guyton uh, as a young coach. Arkansas is averaging 26.5 points per game. Arkansas scored 21 against Bama two weeks ago against Bama. And they lost this week 7-3 to three to Mississippi State and the guy got fired. 21 against Bama. Iowa would score negative against Bama. I can't. So this idea, and it's like the thing of like uh, Kirk Ferentz is like, well, we don't uh, do that during the season. Like other people do it. The Indiana offensive coordinator got fired weeks ago. Like anybody, it's another piece of evidence, Landis, that anybody else doing what Brian Ferentz would have, is doing the last three years, but especially the last two, Absolutely would have been fired by now yeah. because like Sam Pittman at Arkansas didn't stand for it. And Kirk Ferentz at Iowa is standing for it because it's this kid. Well, Sam Pittman is in jeopardy of losing his job 
And Kirk Ferentz never will be at Iowa. So that's part of the motivation there too. Like until Iowa, and like, yeah. listen, it's hard, right? Like Kirk Ferentz is, is, has been wildly successful at Iowa. Hard to fire, I think. Um, Sam Pittman, much more easier, much more easy to fire at Arkansas. But it's a heck of a motivation when you have, you think you're coaching for your job. And I don't think Kirk Ferentz feels that way. Enos. Enos? Like Enos has no job. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, root for Rutgers to save the Big Ten because Wisconsin is leading the West right now with one conference loss, but Wisconsin plays Ohio State this week, and I don't think Wisconsin's going to win. So that'll be the second loss for Wisconsin. And then Iowa and a bunch of other teams already have two conference losses, but Iowa beat Wisconsin head-to-head, so Iowa has the tiebreaker. So somebody else has to beat Iowa, or Iowa's going to the Big Ten championship game. And I think the best candidate, they're on a bye this week, we're rooting for Rutgers, man. Greg Schiano has to get this done Whew. against Iowa because I don't know that Northwestern or Nebraska or, or anybody else left on the Iowa schedule is going to get it done. Is that like, Actually, I take that back. I think Iowa might finish showing four, but still, it's not a guarantee. I th- Rutgers, Iowa might finish three to two. We're going to do a 20 minute preview on that <laughs> when we get to Rutgers, Iowa week. The the look ahead focus on Rutgers Iowa will blow people's minds. Two, two really good defenses. The idea and it's fascinating to think of like Greg Schiano is like I want to be you and I also want to kill you, right? That I have to you have to take down Iowa to be Iowa. But as long as Greg Schiano doesn't hire his kid, then we're all good. So I think it's uh, and the, the the crazy thing is, for as bad as Iowa is averaging 19.5 points per game, there are three Big Ten teams averaging fewer. <laughs> Michigan State, Nebraska, and Indiana are all worse. I so. think the week that the week that Rutgers plays Iowa, I'm pretty sure, is the week that Ohio State plays Michigan State. And for some reason, that game is the primetime NBC game. They need to flex it. Rutgers Iowa needs a primetime slot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The oh, world no, okay. needs to see it. We'll call. We'll call yeah. and get that done. All right. So it's just terrible. It gets more gruesome every week, doesn't it? Whatever we say, people think like I've, people think like we're taking shots, we're piling on, and then you watch Iowa on Saturday, and it's worse than we can even explain in a nine-minute segment. They had seven three and outs. Twelve ten. <laughs> Do you think so? Cooper DeGene runs a punt back at the end of the game; it gets wiped out because he was t- waving his arm to tell people to get away, and they said it was like a, too much like a fair catch signal. So they wiped out the return and said, you just have to take it here. He clearly wasn't signaling for a fair catch, but I saw like the ground view of it. And actually like waving your arm is kind of waving your arm when guys are running down, trying to decide whether they're allowed to tackle you or not. And it is the rule. I actually think like by the rule, it probably was the right call. Yeah, probably. I just don't like the rule then if that's the case. Like there's a difference between waving your arm above your head in a fair catch matter, like clearly directing people to stay away from the ball. Like I thought I thought that was obvious. But you don't want to make it that gray, I guess, like because I think I think most officials right? I think most officials probably would have determined it the same way. I, I don't yeah. Know. Cause he didn't just point, he waved. Yeah. If you just keep your arm just keep your arm out point. So anyway. But again, just like the it was the football gods not allowing Brian Ferentz to be bailed out by another special teams or defensive score. They are righteous and they are just. We appreciate them. All right. So let's see. Can they average more than 33 points a game the rest of the year? 
No, we so we'll still do the Brian Ferentz Survivor Show next week, but there's no Iowa game this weekend, and they're not talking about it this week. But maybe, maybe, maybe uh, Kirk will be pressed on uh, other issues regarding Brian this week. So I'll be curious to see what the discussion is in Iowa City. Okay, look ahead time. There's a banger. There's like a huge game coming, and that will lead off our look ahead next on Kings of the North. Doug Maurice, Bill Landis, the look ahead, biggest games in the North this coming weekend. Michigan on a bye. This week, Iowa on a bye this week. Rutgers on a bye this week. Well earned. Oregon at Utah. It's the game of the week. It's 3.30 on Fox. Oregon is favored by five and a half. And this is an eliminator game. They each have one loss in the Pac-12. And I don't think the loser is eliminated from winning the Pac-12 because I still think there's a chance that a two-loss team, depending on tiebreakers, will get to the Pac-12 title game. But if that two-loss team wins the Pac-12, then the Pac-12 is not getting a playoff team. So this is at least a playoff eliminator for Oregon and Utah. We have to acknowledge how big of a series this has been, Landis. These teams played in the 2019 Pac-12 title game, won by Oregon. They played in the 2021 Pac-12 title game, won by Utah. Combined, they've won the last four Pac-12 titles. It was Oregon, Oregon, Utah, Utah. Um, these are two great teams. Last year, Oregon won 2017. Utah failed on a fourth down pass at midfield in the final two minutes. Like they, These teams are really tight. Utah, Cam Rising, really good quarterback who hasn't played all year, is officially out for the year yeah. at this point. So this really is this great Utah defense against this unbelievable Oregon offense. I don't know which way I lean, but I expect it to be close. And it's incredibly important in the conference and, frankly, in the national title race because the winner is very much alive in that race, I think. It's a huge game. Um, the I've been waiting for Cam Rising to come back because I, I just don't know that I can get myself to pick Utah to win a game like this without him. So, so my lean on this is Oregon, but it's a it's a smaller spread than maybe I, I would have I would have guessed. Like Utah's biggest wins are like Florida, um, UCLA, right? Like USC, USC, yeah, USC. I guess is is different than those two. Like I, I don't know that Utah can like overwhelm Bo Nix maybe the way that it has the other quarterbacks it has in like the, in the three biggest games that I want. And I would include Caleb Williams in that. Cause I don't think USC's offensive line is very good. And Caleb Williams, who's a little out of sorts right now. So I, for as good as Utah is up front on defense, like I think Oregon might be equipped to handle that. Okay. And then and if they are like, I think it's, it's a win for Oregon, but I think, I think it is tight. I think it's physical. I think these dudes are going to be hitting each other. Um, and it's going to be fun to watch, but I just don't like no cam rising. I think drastically lowers the ceiling for me for Utah. Washington is 4-0 in the Pac-12. Uh, USC, Oregon State, Oregon, and Utah all have one Pac-12 loss. So this is, we are getting into like make or break time for all these teams. I think I definitely would take Utah with the five and a half. I imagine it's like yeah. a field goal game. But Kyle Whittingham's feeling himself, and he should, right? He had the quote after the USC game, hey, they have a Heisman winner at quarterback, and they feel good about him. We have a pig farmer at quarterback, and we're pretty proud of him too, Bryson Barnes. So I think we might have reached the point where are we officially in a Bryson Barnes, Cade Stover contest for uh, best farmer football player in the North. Yeah. What did you think of the way that Utah was slowly subbing defensive players and just ticking off Lincoln Riley the entire time? 
I think Kyle Whittingham just could not enjoy it more. Yeah. So it um, seems like he he especially enjoys annoying yeah. Lincoln Riley. Yeah. And this is one of those again that the Pac-12 is peaking at a time when it's dying. Um, I think Lincoln Riley is like as much as we said as as I said maybe not being able to handle Utah is a bad sign for USC and Lincoln Riley. I think Lincoln Riley is like get me away from this guy. <laughs> yeah, they're he's the they are the antithesis of each other, right? They're like they couldn't be more opposite. Yeah. But it's so funny because Lincoln Riley and Ryan Day get compared so much. And Kyle Whittingham and Ryan Day are like brothers because they played that slam bang Rose Bowl where I think they both gained a lot of spec- respect for each other. And then Utah beating USC last year put Ohio State in the playoff. So it's like th- that sort of like pass happy offensive guru guy, Kyle Whittingham, like clearly wants to destroy one and has had no problem helping the other. Maybe, maybe, maybe Ryan Day has helped Kyle Whittingham get inside the head of Lincoln Riley and figure out how to torture oh. him. Yeah. Here, here's yeah. what I would hate, Kyle. Let's <laughs> just do this to Lincoln. I really wish Utah was joining the Big Ten too. Yeah, me Don't too. they feel like they're much more a Big Ten team than a than a Big Twelve team, at least like in style of play. Yeah. Are they they're not? more of a they're more of a Big Ten team than USC is? Yeah. Yeah. Let's see what we can do. Let's add can them we, in here. Can we trade Utah? We, we'll can we trade USC and UCLA back to the Pac-12. We'll take Utah and then like some cash considerations, and then we'll use those cash considerations to bring Air Force into the Big Ten. Oh yeah, yeah. I'd take Colorado though too. Oh yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. You would you take Utah and Colorado instead of USC and UCLA? Yes. Yeah, I think I would too. Yeah. All right. And Air Force. All right, let's do BYU at Texas. Um, ABC three thirty. Texas is favored by 20 and a half. And the reason I put this on here is because Quinn Ewers is hurt for Texas and BYU is five and two. And you were like wondering if BYU is made for this world, but that's because they got absolutely demolished by TCU recently. Right. But they've bounced back. Is there any chance that BYU is like lying in wait for a wounded Texas team? BYU got destroyed by TCU 44 to 11, and then TCU lost 41 to 3 to Kansas State <laughs> the following week. That's a bad, that's a bad TCU team. Um, I was just worried about what Kalani Sataki was saying. Like, we got to fix some things, we got to tweak some things. And I thought he meant like next year, not next week. So, yeah. so good bounce back for them to, to beat Texas Tech. Um, this is like no Quinn Ewers, I think, is paints this in a different light. Um, I think I might like BYU certainly to maybe cover that that three touchdown spread. Malik Murphy is going to play right instead of Quinn Ewers for for Texas a quarterback. He's a pretty big athletic dude. Like he might have a little something to him, um, which will be interesting. But Texas like has been weird. Like not actually played all that well this year, despite having a, a pretty good record um, and beating Alabama. I don't know that I like BYU to win this game, but I think I might like BYU to make it interesting and maybe in, inflict a little bit of pain on Texas in the process. Can I also send a heads up to everybody to probably 75% of teams in the North watch Malik Murphy in this game. Cause he might be your next portal quarterback. Cause that dude is oh, yeah. not going to yeah. wait around for Arch Manning's time to end. So Texas is going to go from Quinn Ewers to Arch Manning and Malik Murphy, I would imagine is going to be on the market and he might look really good in uh Lincoln. I don't know. A million different places. East Lincoln's Lansing, a good one. Yeah. Lincoln's it. a good one. Lincoln. So yeah, Nebraska make that push. I think keep your eyes peeled. All right, I, I'm, I want to couple this game with BYU Texas. Another three thirty game. It's Pitt at Notre Dame, three thirty on NBC. So these first three games are all against each other at three thirty. Notre Dame is favored by seventeen and a half. 
we talked about Pitt's not having a great year. I just think either BYU or Pitt, I would pick one of these two to be a problem for these heavily favored teams today. Because again, on, on Saturday, Pitt's had a rough year, but like Pat Norduzzi knows how to win. Like BYU is in a little bit of a rough spot. I think Kalani Sataki is a good coach and knows how to win. I'm just on alert, brother. That's all. I mean, Pitt might be in a better spot with Christian Veyu, a quarterback, than they were with uh, Phil Dracovic. Um, yeah. I still think that offensive like design and way of going about business stinks, but they might have they might have made the wrong decision to start the year and stumbled into the right one, perhaps at the right time to to make things interesting. I I mostly want to see I want to see Notre Dame like turn it up here. Like they they've gotten through the gauntlet of their schedule, um, not without scars. They they took two losses, one of which they certainly weren't expecting. Um, so like the can we make the playoff thing I think has been derailed a little bit, but they can still finish ten and two, and they got Pitt, Clemson, Wake Forest, and Stanford left. Like they can beat all four of those teams, and they should probably win at least three of those games comfortably. And Clemson's not very good either, so maybe they can they can hammer Clemson too. Like I, I want to see Marcus Freeman and Notre Dame like show us why people were so high on them and at the start of the season and and kind of finish this thing on the right note. All right, seven thirty. It's Ohio State at Wisconsin on NBC. Ohio State favored by fourteen. On the road, there have been times every now and then when I feel like a Wisconsin game is kind of maybe waiting to jump up and bite Ohio State. Most of the time, was Wisconsin like okay, like they've been good, but like they do not have a chance to hang with Ohio State in this one. I think beginning of the year, right, everyone pointed to four games for Ohio State: Notre Dame, Penn State, Wisconsin, Michigan. I don't know that Wisconsin belongs in that group anymore. Bit of a weird year, but they are coming off a great comeback win against Illinois. I thought that game was over. And Luke Fickle was in the locker room telling this team like this, this is what we want. This is who we can be. I think they scored 18 points or something like that in the fourth quarter to come back and win that game. A chance? Luke Fickle, the last time he played Ohio State when he was a Cincinnati coach, came into Columbus and got rolled. And I think did not handle it very well at all. I think it was 42 nothing. I think it might have been the worst. I think it was the worst game Luke Fickle coached in a great run at Cincinnati. Well, how will he handle this? Yeah. And does Wisconsin have a chance just from a talent standpoint to hang? Um, I'm very curious to see how he handles it this week. That week, he did not let the media talk to Cincinnati's players. Like, that's how tightly wound he was about a game that they had no shot to win. By yeah. the way. Like, no one was expecting Luke Fickle to come into Ohio State and win that game, but he was tight nonetheless, and then they got shellacked. Um, so I want to see what he's like this week talking about this game. Uh, did they have a chance? Like, I, I don't know. The weather is supposed to be not great. Like, it's going to be cold. It could be rainy. could be a game potentially where throwing the ball is a little difficult. I, I Maybe that I don't think that favors Wisconsin, but maybe it makes it a little more comfortable for Wisconsin. Like they still have Braylon Allen, no Tanner Mordecai, which I'm right. not so sure is a bad thing. Um, Braden Locke stepped in last week, threw for 240 yards and two touchdowns. He doesn't give you the run threat that I think Tanner Mordecai was giving them. Um, they're still throwing the ball a ton there at Wisconsin, and, and I think until they get out of that mode, I don't know if they can win a game like this. But maybe it's lower scoring. Maybe they cover the 14 because of that. Um, but I don't I don't know if I give them much of a chance. Last game on our look ahead, Oregon State at Arizona, 1030 on ESPN. Oregon State favored by six and a half. And Arizona is the team in the Pac-12 that's been giving everybody trouble. I planted my flag, I think, two weeks ago on Oregon State making the Pac-12 title game. So they have to just keep taking care of business. But, um, you know, I just watching some more Oregon State stuff this week, checking out uh, Taliesi Fuaga. And I just, there's a, I just still, 
tell you what, like I, I really like Oregon State's pieces. I just think, I think they are a really good team. And so like, I'm a little bit on edge with them because I kind of don't want somebody to jump up and get them. Cause I, I kind of want, I want Oregon state to get to the point at the end of the year where they're able to take their shots against Was- Washington and Oregon and have it matter and see what happens and where Oregon state's not like playing a spoiler there. They're more on the same level as Oregon and Washington. So that means I'm carefully watching Oregon state every week, but every time I look at a man, I'm, I'm impressed. Can Oregon cover Tetaro McMillan and Jacob Cowing? <laughs> Oregon State. Oregon State. Um, Oregon State. I don't know. They couldn't cover Washington State, right? I mean, this yeah. is like this is life in the freaking Pac-12, man. Like even the teams that aren't very good have a chance, have some dudes who can catch it, and they might sling it all over the place on you. Yeah, and like Arizona, I think has probably moved on from Jaden Delora to Noah Fafita, a quarterback, and he's thrown for like uh, nine hundred yards in the three games he's played in Jaden Delora's absence. Like he's good. I think they're overall in the season they're not particularly explosive, but they certainly have explosive potential. Like I'm, I'm a little worried about Arizona's strengths, not and for Oregon State's perspective, like not really matching up all that well with, yeah. with Oregon State's weaknesses in the secondary. Um, and Arizona's defense is actually not terrible. Um, I don't know. I think this could be a potential upset spot here. So we also just, I mean, everybody in the North, right? You're getting conditioned to staying up to watch these games. So it's just, it's just a 2 a.m. commitment. Um, there was a time before we started thinking about college football as north south, right? If you thought about it east west or whatever, it's like time zone, just like ah, well, these are your people now, man. Yeah, like we're in the north, we're in this together, and that means paying attention to Oregon and Washington and Oregon State and Washington State, and they'll pay you back, man. Now, you don't have to stay up when it's Arizona State and UCLA, you can go to bed, you're allowed to go to bed in the north, but I think you have to stay up for this one because like Landis made me even more nervous, and I just, I, I really. Um, am eager for Oregon State to like go down swinging in this last go round in the Pac-12, and I just I like so much about their team um, that I I just want them to put their best foot forward. But yeah. Pac-12 tough. All right, we will be back uh, on Wednesday on Kings of Columbus. That's our Ohio State focus show. But every Monday, you can find us here on Kings of the North. We have a separate YouTube channel. At KOTNCFB, you can find us there. We now have a Twitter feed. KOTNCFB, you can follow us there. We have an Instagram feed, KOTNCFB. And uh, we're building, man. More and more to come. Everybody's invited. Tell your friends. If you are interested in Northern football, if you want to celebrate and contextualize and uh, understand Northern football, and every now and then make fun of uh, the South. Uh, and what they think about football down there. This is this is the place where people need to be, right, Landis? That's right. Dog mentality. We're all about it. Dog mentality. Kirby Smart wore a brown belt with black shoes and didn't care what people thought. Dog mentality. Um, that would be a good one. We should have people send in. That's our dog mentality. It's a version of you might be a redneck, right? Dog mentality. <laughs> We can, we, I think we have a chance to do something with that. We're looking for bits. we got to get our bits together here in Kings of the North. For now, uh, for Mike Rostowski, our great producer, who makes this all work, uh, I am Doug Lamarice. He is Bill Landis. And that was Kings of the North.